Hello and welcome back to this series of plastic surgery podcasts by the School of Surgery. My name is Benjamin Baker and I'm here again today with Miss Jill Arrowsmith, a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon with a special interest in hand surgery here in Derby. Today we're going to talk about Dupuytron's contracture and we're going to discuss its pathogenesis, the risk factors for its development, its presentation, subsequent diagnosis and management. So thanks for joining us Miss Arrowsmith. So what is Dupuytron's contracture? Dupuytron's contracture is a part of a group of fibromatoses. It's a progressive disorder which starts with a nodule in the palm and leads on to shortening and thickening of the longitudinal fibres of the palmar fascia. With time, this causes contractures of the metacarpophalangeal joints and also the proximal interphalangeal joints of the digits. It usually begins on the ulnar aspect of the palm, so the ring and little fingers, rather than the index finger and thumb. Okay, and what do we know about the pathogenesis of the condition? We don't know why it starts, however we do know what it's like when it's got going. It begins as a proliferative phase, which is a nodule in the palm, usually at the level of the distal palmar crease. Some people find that itchy or painful, and we know that that's from myofibroblasts. Once the nodule has got started, it then runs distally and is called a cord as it progresses beyond the joints and begins to cause the joint contractures. Histologically, that's an involutional phase with less active cells and less blood cells within the fascia. Eventually, there's a residual phase, but during this time, although the cord becomes relatively acellular, the contractures that the patient's experiencing continue to progress as the joints become more and more flexed towards the palm. And which patient groups suffer with the condition, and what are the risk factors for it? Although we don't fully understand the genetics of Dupuytron's disease, we do know that this is much more common in Northern Europeans. Indeed, the more north you go, the more common this condition is. And a nice thing to tell your patients is that it followed where the Vikings went. Um, It's much more common in men, and most people develop it in their 50s and 60s, but the number of people with the disease increases as people get older. If people develop the disease when they're young, so 30s or 40s, it's much more likely that they'll have more problems with the disease causing functional incapacity as they get older. In the textbooks, there's a lot written about associations with such things like smoking, diabetes, alcoholics, etc. But there's actually very little epidemiological evidence to support that. Sure. Okay. So... For example, as a junior trainee, I'd be in hand clinic and I'd see a patient with a reduced range of motion, most likely in their fourth and fifth digits of the hand, and they would complain of a loss of dexterity in their hand and getting it caught when trying to place it in their pocket, for example. Um, The patient may experience progressive difficulty in typing and grasping objects, and on examination there would be a flexion deformity, which cannot be corrected passively or actively, and there would be a palpable cord, which the patient confirms has been getting progressively worse. On examination, there was no concomitant sensory signs and I diagnosed Dupuytron's contracture on a clinical basis. And in that situation, would there be anything else which I need to rule out? 
Jupiter's disease is one of those conditions which is a spot diagnosis. There are very few things which mimic Jupiter's disease. It would be worth excluding a trigger finger, which is a condition where when the patient makes a full fist, as they then try to straighten their fingers, they're unable to actively straighten one of the digits, and it's usually bent at the proximal interphalangeal joint. They can sometimes overcome the flexion, and sometimes they have to use their other hand to straighten the finger, and as they do that, they get pain over the volar aspect of the metacarpophalangeal joint. And you could often feel a nodule slipping underneath the A1 pulley if you put your thumb in that area and ask them to move their finger. It would be very uncommon, but some people can have swellings in the palm which may mimic Jupiter's disease. However, most of the masses that you can develop in the palm feel very different to Jupiter's disease. So if you have a hard lump in the line with the little or ring fingers, or a cord running up into those fingers, pretty much the only thing it can be is Jupiter's disease. Okay, so once I've made the diagnosis, what do I need to sort of figure out about the patient in order to guide their further management? The thing to remember about Jupiter's disease is that we can't cure it. All we are aiming to do is to treat the patient's hand so that they can use their fingers as much as possible, as freely as possible. So that depends very much on the individual's requirements of their hand. Some people cope with quite flexed fingers, whereas other people don't like it the minute they can't hyperextend their um, MCP joints. So what you'd need to assess is what the patient's job is and what functional problems they're having with their hand. And if they are getting problems and require treatment, what are the options? Unfortunately, there's very little medical management of Jupiter's disease, so splinting and stretching doesn't seem to prevent or improve the contractures. Um, in Europe, people are very keen on steroid injections into the nodules in the palm when they're in the proliferative phase because these are often itchy or uncomfortable, and that can be useful if someone's having functional problems because of a painful lump when they're trying to change gear or pick up their tools and part of their job. Recently, a collagenase injection has been licensed for use on the NHS. That's very effective at dissolving away part of the cord of collagen that creates Jupiter's disease and can get the finger straight again following this treatment. The gold standard treatment remains a type of surgery and there are lots of different techniques for this. One of them involves a needle to split the cord. The next step up would be an operation to cut out the involved cord of collagen underneath the skin. And in complicated cases, it may be that something called a dermofasciectomy is needed, which is where skin and scar tissue, as well as the underlying Jupiter's disease, is excised, and then that hole is filled with a full thickness skin graft. An important thing to bear in mind is that none of the treatments currently available for Jupiter's disease are a permanent cure and that the contracture will inevitably recur with time following any intervention. Okay, thanks. And so when you're doing the procedure itself and excising the cord, are there any specific things which you need to consider? During the actual operation itself, you'd need to decide whether this is something that you can achieve under a local anaesthetic or more commonly in our practice, a regional anaesthesia, which is where the anaesthetist will 
block the nerves running down to the arm in the supraclavicular fossa. That means that we can use a pneumatic tourniquet on the upper arm as the patient can no longer feel this. We try and do all of our hand surgery operations under tourniquet control because that allows us to visualise the digital nerves clearly so that we don't injure them during the operation. Following excision of the Jupitron's cord, the finger will come straighter than it was preoperatively and you will have a skin shortage because when the finger has been held flexed for a long time, the skin on the palm shrinks. In order to get the wound closed, you'll need to Z-plasty the skin edges to get increased length as you've corrected that flexion deformity and in some cases you may need a skin graft to get more length. Another option on the palm is to leave that wound open, which is called the Macash open palm technique. If this is a reasonably small area, patient skin will heal up within two to three weeks without any problems. So today we've discussed the pathogenesis of Dupatron's contracture. We've also discussed the risk factors for its development, the diagnosis of the condition and its subsequent management. So some take-home messages from today. The first thing would be that the pathogenesis of Dupatron's contracture is relatively well understood, but we're not f yet fully aware of all of its triggers. It should be noted that despite treatment, this disease will recur, and patients should be aware that this may happen at some point in the future. Join us again soon here at the School of Surgery for some more plastic surgery podcasts.